Hey, good morning, everybody. Oh, we've got a few more people coming in. Um, and uh, thank you for coming along today. It's good to see uh, well, a really healthy, uh, large audience. Um, what I'm going to talk to you today about, well, obviously, earthquake science in the 21st century. This is the title I gave. And, and uh, I put kind of a slightly unusual starting slide on here, which is of this kind of ruined monument in Iran, about a thousand years old. And this is a place we visited in 2002. It's the site of a, of a destructive earthquake that happened in this part of Iran at that time. And the reason I put this slide up to start with, it's always nice to put some nice field photographs in. The second thing is that a lot of the things that we're actually doing right now, a lot of the modern developments in terms of, of understanding earthquakes, um, is looking further back in time. So looking through into the historical records and even beyond that, looking into, into prehistory, looking to try and figure out um, um, from earthquakes that have happened in the recent times to try and export that knowledge and try and understand things, disasters that have happened in the past and also where disasters may happen in future. I'm going to start straight away with, uh, with some acknowledgements. Um, I work in the Department of Sciences and I'm actually part of this uh, Institute, Comet Plus, Centre for the Observation and Modelling of Earthquakes, Volcanoes, with a silent V in tectonics. Um, the volcanoes came in a little bit later after the name had been uh, uh, designed. And this is part of something called the National Centre of Earth Observation. And, uh, and so what this actually is, is it, we're, we're looking at earthquakes, volcanoes, natural hazards. And, and the focus is on using earth observation especially satellite technologies, right? So a lot of the, the research that's done within this department, also the University of Cambridge, Leeds and University College London are all partners within, within Comet, is in trying to look at, at earthquakes using, using these satellite technologies. And we'll, we'll see a whole bunch of pictures like this later on in the talk. I'll explain what these things are. It's actually a map of, of ground information within an earthquake. Um, but also, um, the, this, this does encompass field studies and, and also just looking at the Earth from space using optical satellite images, the kind of things that you can just access on, on Google Earth. It's absolutely amazing that we have this resource. And I'll show you some pictures that I've just taken off Google Earth. Hopefully by the end of this lecture, with a few of the uh, examples I've given you, you could actually probably just go home and, 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 and spot some of these things for, your, for yourself. All the imagery is there and it's free and it's online. Um, the final reason I put this up is, well, first of all, is, is um, that a lot of the material I'm going to talk about is actually not mine. It's stuff by several of my colleagues within Comet Plus, especially Barry Parsons uh, here in this department, James Jackson in Cambridge. And, and, and also, um, there is a website for, for Comet Plus, and a lot of this information is online. It's, it's just there available. So if you find any of this interesting, then just go... Uh, type into uh, Comet into Google and ignore the ones for uh, electrical appliance uh, uh, <laughs> retailers, and you will find uh, a lot of the information there. Okay, so this is kind of, well, it's a rather shocking image. It's an image that we will all remember from the news just uh, a few months ago, the aftermath of this uh, gigantic earthquake in J uh, Japan in March of this year and the resulting tsunami. And earthquakes, well, obviously earthquakes uh, like this make the, make the news in a big way. And they're often in the news. 
just a month before in Christchurch, New Zealand, we again um, had, had, had images like this, this, uh, this building that collapsed on top of a, of, of a bus here in the centre of Christchurch. We're seeing quite regular earthquake disasters. So, you know, if, if we're ever kind of asked to justify work that we're, we're doing, there's obviously a very strong social impact. We can't deny that these are a major challenge facing us, um, well, in, 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 in the present century and going on into the future. Casting your minds back, um, these are all ones that hit the news, but they happen so regularly, sometimes they kind of blend into so one 2010 in Haiti. Uh, going back even further, 2008 in Sichuan, in, uh, in China, 2005, Pakistan, the Musafarabad earthquake, and then one that, that, that I know particularly well, and we'll see this in, uh, during the talk, in 2003 in Bam, in Iran. So again, you know, they're just happening quite regularly, and we see these things, and they ha- do have a lot of impact. So of course... The, um, the, the, the 2004 Sumatra earthquake and its, and its resultant tsunami, um, which is in everyone's minds, really, because of the, the kind of very large-scale impact of that, that tsunami across, uh, well, the entire Indian Ocean region. And that's just kind of to, to, to cast your mind back to show that, you know, these things do happen regularly. And often I'm, I'm asked whether these things are happening more regularly. Do we have more earthquakes? Why are these things in the news so often? Well, no, we don't have more earthquakes. Earthquakes are just happening at the same rates that they've always happened. Um, however, the impact of those earthquakes in terms of loss of human lives, in terms of destruction to, to property and infrastructure, is getting more common. Here's a, a little plot. This is of cumulative fatalities. When you're looking at earthquakes, you often get used to kind of banding around numbers like this. So, so just as a way of, of categorizing earthquakes here, as these grey bars, we've put in any earthquake that killed more than 10,000 people. Arbitrary cutoff. In red, any that have killed more than 50,000 people. And this plot goes back to, uh, well, a thousand years ago. And um, using historical records, and for earthquakes of this size or this impact, um, then um, the, the, the historical records are, are generally pretty good. You know, some, something that's, 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 that's had this amount of human uh, casualties will have reached the historical records is very likely to have. And for a large part of the last thousand years, these things were happening on average once every 20 years or so. But then you see that since about 1600, they started to become more common. So on average, about once every five years. You can already see that in the last century, we uh, almost doubled that as well. So it's probably once every three years. And then in the last 11 years, so we've hardly even started this century. And so far, we've had seven earthquakes that make it onto this table. 2001 in India, 2003 in Iran, 2004 Sumatra, Pakistan, China, Haiti, and Japan. So, if we keep on in this way, we would expect this by 2100 to, to really be, 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 be way up here. And one of the things I'm going to do is to explore why that is. As I say, the earthquakes are not becoming more common, but their effects are becoming more uh, damaging. But first of all, I'm going to make sure that everyone uh, has 
uh, is up to the same kind of uh, speed on what we're actually looking at here. I'm going to start with plate tectonics. I think pretty much every, well, everyone will have heard of plate tectonics uh, as, as, as a theory. This idea that you have the, um, the surface of the Earth composed of a series of plates, right, which move relative to one another. Now, there, there, are, there are some very important things within plate tectonics. First of all, these plates are rigid. Right? So there is no deformation within the interior of these plates. The second thing is that you, any of the relative motion between two plates is accommodated at the margins, at the boundaries. Right? So within the interior of the plates, nothing happening at all, and then all of the motion is happening at the edges. So here's a little cut through. This is just like straight out of the... You know, a, a, a pretty much a school textbook. And here we have an oceanic plate with new uh, material, uh, oceanic crust being created uh, at, at a mid-ocean ridge, like the mid-Atlantic ridge, for instance. The plates are then moving apart and then are destroyed at these areas called subduction zones where the oceanic crust is then, then pushed back down into the mantle. And in certain places also you get places where the plates move laterally, side to side. So you end up with these, uh, these transform or, or strike-slip boundaries, these uh, constructional boundaries, and then also these, uh, these subduction zones. And some of the very large earthquakes that we've seen over the last few years, um, including the one in 2004, the Sumatran one, are occurring at these plate boundaries, right? So the 2004 earthquake here, we are along here, ruptured this green section of this plate boundary between the, uh, the um, Australian and the Sunda plates. It was about 1,000 kilometres long. Uh, the magnitude of an earthquake really, well, scales with the, the length of, of, of rupture that occurred and also the amount of slip that had occurred. And so this became very large, a thousand kilometers long. It's, 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 it, it, was, it was one of the largest known earthquakes to, to have occurred. There have been various other still very large earthquakes, but slightly smaller uh, in the subsequent years. So, for instance, this one here and, and, and these two down here, which are all very considerable earthquakes in their own right. That 8.6 one is still you know, within one of the largest known earthquakes, even though it's you know, kind of a way, an aftershock of, uh, of, the, um, of the, the 2004 one. Likewise with the earthquake in 2011, the Japanese one, it's a plate boundary earthquake. Here's Japan on the Eurasian plate. We have the Pacific plate here, and that's busy diving down underneath both the Eurasian plate and the Philippine sea plate here. It's a little bit more complicated than the Sumatran one. And the Philippine sea plate is, is diving down between Eurasia. So, so underneath Tokyo, you've got various of these subduction zones, all of which are, are hazards, all of which produce earthquakes. And uh, the one in 2011 ruptured along this section here. So in this northern part of Japan along there. And again... Uh, a very long rupture, a large amounts of slip, and a large magnitude. What actually happens when, uh, or, or before an earthquake of this type, the, the fault is generally underneath the, the sea, at the bottom of the ocean. This is our subducting plate coming down here. And because the fault is locked by friction, it kind of drags down the overriding plate. When 
the fault fails, this overriding plate bounces back over a matter of seconds, it displaces the body of water above it, and then that, uh, of course, causes the water to want to move, and it ends up producing some of these tsunami waves. Okay, so let's, let's look at that plate tectonic story again in terms of earthquakes, because we said that those plates have to move relative to one another and that the motion has to occur right at the boundaries. And, and that motion is being recorded as earthquakes, right? When things move, they make an earthquake. And when we look at a global distribution of earthquakes, we can see that that kind of uh, you know, makes sense. Here, this is the mid-Atlantic ridge where the Atlantic is, is spreading, getting wider, and it runs down as a very narrow band of earthquakes. So you can see that going down here, right? Also, some of these subduction zones, so for instance, along uh, uh, by, by Japan, and, uh, and also down um, along the, the Sumatran subduction zone there. Again, very narrow zones of earthquakes. So here's, here's our Japan, and here's our, our, um, our Sumatran one. Very narrow bands of earthquakes. But there are certain parts of this map of global earthquakes where this just doesn't seem to hold, this idea of narrow bands of, of, of earthquakes. In particular, we see within uh, Europe and Asia, this thing called the Alpine Himalayan mountain chains, this very long, uh, broad zone of mountainous topography that runs through uh, southern Europe and, and southern Asia, we see a large distribution of earthquakes spread over thousands of kilometres. This is not a nice, narrow little boundary with one fault. This is a very, very large zone. What's actually happening in this area is that you have, well, you could call it the Eurasian plate up here. Down to the south, you have various plates, Africa, Arabia and India, which are all moving northwards relative to Eurasia. So they're gradually shortening this area, which is why you've got the mountains. You are, are actually producing these mountains by this, this, uh, this shortening. But you don't have any neat boundary between all of these plates. What instead you have is a kind of mush zone, several thousand kilometers wide, in which you're producing earthquakes across that entire region. And you're producing earthquakes on many, many small faults which are spread over very wide regions. So, so in a way, the, the earthquake hazard, the earthquake problem within continental regions is very, very different from the earthquake hazard at plate boundary regions. They're, they're, they're actually rather separate, uh, separate problems. And, and you, can, well, you can kind of see that in a, in, 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 in a way here. We've again gone on to, this is the, we're, we're looking at uh, their effects in terms of human lives here. The first thing is that blue, blue here are all of these plate boundary earthquakes. And uh, pink are uh, earthquakes within continental um, interiors. And you see that the blue ones, the plate boundary ones, can be very large. Here are magnitude 9, so these are our, our, our Japanese and, um, and Sumatran examples which together have, 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 have been very destructive. This is the 1960 Chile earthquake here, the very largest earthquake known. Continental interiors, more of them, more of these destructive earthquakes. Um, they're also smaller magnitude, right? Smaller faults, um, uh, smaller earthquakes, but still they have a very large impact. 
uh, in terms of, uh, of, of cost in human lives, and also, as we'll see, in, in, in terms of, of uh, uh, the, the economy as well, in terms of infrastructure. What I'd like to do is focus... Uh, and anyway, this, I actually work in continental interiors. I, 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 I want to show you um, some of the tools that exist for studying this kind of uh, uh, earthquake hazard within, within the continents. And the second thing I want to do, which is, 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 is more a kind of social uh, science issue in a way, is why are they so destructive? Why do you have these immensely large cumulative death tolls from earthquakes, which in the scheme of things are actually not so big? You know, there's this huge peak here at magnitude 7.5 and magnitude 7. But even some of these smaller earthquakes, magnitude 6 down here, which are still causing really large amounts of, um, of, of problems for the people who are living there in those regions. Okay, what's actually going to happen in an earthquake? This is a little map of a, uh, well, any, any earthquake-prone part of the, of the world. What we've got down in the middle is a red line. This is a fault which is locked by friction, right? And what we've done is we've built a very long straight fence along and across this fault. So, okay, 100 kilometers long, here's our fence, our black line. And what's happening is that the top part of our, uh, our, our area, our piece of land, is wanting to move to the right, and the bottom half is wanting to move to the left. Now, if I go away for 200 years and I come back, then what I will have found is that that, that, that motion, very slow amounts of motion every year, is just gradually pushing this side across. So the north, has moved to the, uh, north side has moved to the right, and it's accumulated about five metres of stored strain across that fault. It's still locked together by friction. And my fence is now bent. So I'm going to make another fence, another very long straight fence, and then straight after making that fence, the earthquake happens. And all of that five metres of stored uh, strain has been released as slip on this fault. And you'll see what happens here is that, that our, our old fence has now just has gone back to its original shape. Everything has been recovered. It's completely, it's like you know, stretching an elastic band. It snaps, it goes back to its original length afterwards. Our fence that was built just before the earthquake, we see a dislocation right where the fault has, has slipped. But far away from that, we see no overall motion because it, was just, it hasn't stored that long-term, uh, you know, very slow accumulation of, 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 of movement. And that final stage happens very quickly over a period of just a, a few seconds. That's, we were using the example of a fence. Here's an example of a real example of a fence. Um, this is from the Darfield earthquake. So this is the two 2010 New Zealand earthquake. Uh, the, the one that actually, uh, well, it, uh, some people say it actually had a positive death toll because I think it, it induced labour in one lady who was in a... So, so, so it's a kind of, I think it's the only known example of this. Uh, but, but here's our, our, our fault rupture running along there. And the, here's our fence, and then it's been displaced. And, and uh, well, I don't know how big a, a cow is. It's probably about four, four metres or something, right? Uh, that's, maybe that's a big cow, isn't it? It's probably a bit less. Um, I was in Christchurch during the quakes, yeah. and uh, at the hospital. We had dozens and dozens of um, early births. Really? A classic symptom of earthquakes where they're Oh, wow. So this is amazing. So they had a, a positive, uh, so it was like plus 20 or something then. Oh, so really? Oh, wow. Okay. Right, right. You will get that after. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> 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 anyway, so, so that's, that's what happens so, you know, in terms of the, the earthquake rapture straight afterwards. Uh, there are o- older examples of this. Uh, you know, it's, I think this is the earliest known uh, displaced fence photograph. These are quite famous within the you know, seismology literature. People go searching for these things. And, and, and again, this is a displacement from this, uh, this hopeful earthquake in, in 1888. Now, okay, that's all great. We can go along and measure offset fences and things. But the, 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 we actually have a lot of, of new ways of, 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 of looking at the ground displacement uh, in an earthquake. And a lot of these are remote sensing techniques. So again, using satellite technology. This is a radar satellite. It's emitting a, uh, a radar beam at the Earth's surface, and then that bounces back again. What people, uh, not normally, they, these have all sorts of, of uses. The, 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 the earthquake usage is actually a little spin-off. It's, it, it, it's, these satellites aren't designed for doing this. But you can actually kind of produce, you know, there's a certain amount of, of, uh, of wavelengths uh, taken to get to the Earth and a certain amount of wavelengths required to get back. These satellites are constantly going around and they keep on imaging a certain part of the ground with, uh, with, with, with radar or illuminating it with radar. If there's been an earthquake, any ground motion, it doesn't have to be an earthquake, any type of ground motion in between, it will change the path length. And those things can actually be, um, be, be, be imaged basically by differencing these, these, these two before and after radar images. And you can produce wonderful um, images of exactly how the ground has deformed during earthquakes using these technology. I don't know if you saw the BBC News website. This is a colleague of mine, John Elliott, in this department. And, and this actually kind of got, got quite a lot of media attention. This is, a, this is a map of ground displacement made using radar uh, uh, satellite imagery uh, for the 2010 New Zealand earthquake, and, and we don't need to go into the details of it. But you can see that all of this, these, these fr- what they call fringes, they all centre along a line, right along, along here. So I'll just point that out to you guys as well. So they, they centre along a line running right along there, and that's exactly where the surface rupture was found. So this is exactly where the earthquake was. And by imaging this over a very large area, you get huge amounts of information in terms of exactly what happened in the earthquake. You, you can add to the field observations in a huge way. It helps you understand exactly what happened in that earthquake. This is, is, is another one for the 2011 New Zealand earthquake. Again, you can see that all of our, our fringes here are kind of centred on Christchurch. This uh, uh, earthquake happened pretty much right underneath the, underneath the, the city. Not quite, but you know, there's, there's the centre of Christchurch. But very close, uh, which goes somewhere to explaining the, the kind of damage that occurred there. Also, because it's more of a kind of urban area, it's, it's not such a clean image. We have big gaps, and that's because the ground surface has changed. You know, buildings have changed, and, and there's been uh, lots of liquefaction. So the ground surface is actually uh, altered, and so therefore you don't get any uh, coherence between the before and after images. They, 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 they no longer can be compared. Okay, so we can do all those kind of things. I'm actually now going to talk about somewhere that's very different from New Zealand. I'm going to talk about Iran. And I'm going to talk about Iran because it's a place I know very well. And I'm also going to talk uh, about Iran because it's a place that, well, it, it, it has a huge problem with earthquakes. And, um, and, and, and we can actually learn quite a few lessons by, by looking at it. Here, this is a photograph I took in, in 2000 of the citadel 
of Bam in, uh, in southeast Iran. This is down here. The red dot on, the, on, on, on that little corner image shows where Bam is. This is a photograph taken in 2004 in January by my colleague James Jackson. Similar viewpoint. Um, absolutely wrecked. Right? This is not a particularly big earthquake. Magnitude 6.6. Um, it killed about 30,000 people and destroyed about 70% of all dwellings. The total population in BAM was about 80,000. So it's almost one in two people uh, well, dead uh, within, within a matter of, of seconds and, um, and, and following days. This is a satellite image showing BAM, which is kind of labelled in, 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 in yellow and, and, a, and a nearby settlement of, of Baravet. And um, you can, they're red. Red is, is showing vegetation in, the, in this particular colour scheme. And there is an identified fault. I mean, this is why I was in BAM in 2000. We were looking at this fault here. And after the earthquake, so again, you know, comet research, this is stuff that was done here in this department, um, it, we could produce a map of, 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 of uh, or my colleagues could produce a map of, uh, of surface displacements from the earthquake. You can see BAM. You can see BAM because it doesn't show up in the image. The ground surface changed. The buildings fell down. There is no coherence. So it's almost total destruction within that region. But you can see that the surface displacements uh, are greatest along this line, which is pointing right at the city. Our mapped fault is there. It's a few kilometres away. Right? But the, the, the earthquake actually happened on a fault that no one knew existed. It was out in the desert, and it was pointing right at the, 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 the city, which goes somewhere to explain um, exactly why there was such shocking levels of destruction. And in fact, alerted by these images, uh, field geologists... Uh, colleagues from the Geological Survey of Iran wrote out and they actually found ground rupture along this line. No one would have known that existed otherwise. So, so it really helped our interpretation of what was happening. But Bam is an ancient place, right? This citadel here is medieval. People argue exactly how old it is, but, but you know, let's say a thousand years or so. The town is several thousand years old. And there was no record of earthquakes in this place. So even with that long record, we have only experienced one earthquake in this small town. What does this tell us? It tells us that all the way across Iran, and you can see it here in this little inset, all these yellow dots are all earthquakes of many faults, all of which are moving very slowly and making very, very infrequent earthquakes. Right? So the repeat time between earthquakes on any fault within Iran could be thousands of years. So how do we account for this? What can we do? How can we find these faults? One thing we can do is we can learn from places like BAM. We can say, okay, it's happened here. What can we identify? What are the giveaways? How do we know where other earthquake-prone regions might be? How can we do this? We can look back in time. This is where the historical records come in. Now, on the left-hand side here, we've got red dots and white dots. White dots are instrumentally recorded earthquakes, modern earthquakes. Uh, going back to 1964, and, uh, which is when the, the kind of global standard network of seismometers was, was installed, when, when you could actually first get very reliable um, uh, earthquake epicenters using seismology. The red dots on this are 
earthquakes that have been dredged from the historical record by uh, colleagues uh, Nicholas Ambrose's and, and, and his colleague uh, Charles Melville, who made a, well, it was an amazing uh, piece of research, really. It's been years in libraries in various kind of... Uh, uh, across the, the Middle East and, and, and Asia, and, 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 and compiling these catalogues, which help us go beyond the, you know, the 100 or 50 years of, uh, of, 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 of memory and of... of, of um, of instrumental information and go back into the thousands of years even in Iran to really build up a better picture of exactly where the earthquake hazard lies. The earliest record of an earthquake in Iran is 3000 BC. So it's really amazing. Obviously the catalogue isn't complete at that level, but, but it gradually becomes better and better as you go through time. And I'll just point out there on the right-hand side, We've just taken all of that information, and, and here we've just done it by, by, um, by, by, by destruction again. So, so white dots here are earthquakes that have killed more than 10,000 people. Red are those that have killed more than 30,000 people. So BAM is our most recent one, but there are lots of historical examples of these as well. So, for instance, the two in Tabriz in the northwest uh, occurred in, I think it was the late 1700s. I could be wrong on that. But our example from BAM tells, uh, tells us that the historical record isn't enough. Right? These faults are moving so slowly that you're not going to pick everything up just looking at historical records. We need to go even further back in time. We need to, uh, and, and, and this is actually the, the kind of work that I do myself, this is my, my, my particular thing, is to look at the effects of repeated earthquakes... Uh, on the landscape. So in this very simple example, here we've got a little landscape with some trees and a little river. We have an earthquake, it displaces the river. Two earthquakes, it displaces even more. Three, etc. By repeating numerous earthquakes, by looking at a long enough time period, maybe we're looking at 10,000 years, maybe we're looking at 100,000 years, you start to see the effect of these faults on the landscape. Right? And if we can identify these kind of features this becomes very powerful because we're not just restricted to places where earthquakes have happened in, 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 in recent or in the historical past. We can try and map out where all of the uh, seismic sources might be. We get a much better idea. And so, okay, yeah, the evidence of repeated earthquakes is recorded in the landscape. I'm going to give you an example or two of this um, from, from, from my own research. Here is a satellite image, and they're all from Iran again. Here's a satellite image of the Gauk Fault. This is in southeast Iran. I haven't put a, um, a, a location map on here because this is BAM here. This is the place that uh, we were just talking about before. It's the kind of older sibling of the BAM Fault because this is the BAM Fault, tiny little thing. Right? That little black line on BAM is the one that caused, uh, well, caused almost 50% of the people to, to be killed in that small town. The Gauk Fold is about 200 kilometres long and is just next door to it. And it's had a series of earthquakes, which are represented by these, these, these things we call beach balls. I'm not going to go into what they actually represent, but each one of those is an earthquake. And in a series of earthquakes in 1981 and 1998, uh, there, was, uh, there was rupture of that section of the fault there that's marked in red. And... If you go out to that area, it broke the ground surface. So this is just like our, our, our picture from New Zealand, the broken fence. But here, what we've done in this black and white photo, this was taken in 1998. We, I'm going to have to point this out to both 
screens in turn. This is the ground rupture along here, right? It's a bit hard to see, but it goes along there. And, and you can see this is a little stream, and there's the edge of the stream, and it runs down there, and it crosses the rupture, and then, oh, actually, sorry, no, I'm telling you, it goes along there, and this is the stream coming along, and then it is displaced across there, right? So that's about three metres. So the bed of that stream is displaced by three metres. Likewise, there's a stream coming along, there's a rupture, and it comes out just at the edge of this photo. I'm just going to repeat that one over here. So here is our rupture along there, right? Here is uh, a little edge of a stream bed, and it comes along, reaches the rupture, and then is suddenly over here and carries on. Here's a little stream bed, comes along, and is suddenly displaced to where that person is. That's three metres. There's three metres of ground displacement in that earthquake. Below, I've shown a picture, not from the same place, but, but from roughly uh, the same area, uh, that I took uh, just uh, two years ago. And I put that there to show you that nothing much has changed. It's really clear. I can still go along here, and I can still measure lots of things about that earthquake. It hasn't degraded much. It's a very hot, dry country. One of the reasons why we work there so much, it's very clear to see things in the landscape. The landscape doesn't change much. And... Having established that, I'm now going to go on the Google Earth, right? So this is just taken directly from Google Earth. I've actually, I was just looking through this talk just before you all came in here, and I've realised I've made the most elemental mistake of any geology undergraduate. I've put up a picture without a scale on it, which is uh, something that I would uh, kind of tell undergraduates off for, and I just did it myself. It's about 100 metres from, from, from top to bottom, right, so roughly. Uh, my apologies for that. Um, and this is, this is why I say you can do this kind of stuff yourself. You know, if you just go on Google Earth at home, get on your computer, and you can map out fault zones, you can map out uh, past earthquakes. It's absolutely amazing what you can do. What's in this image, you can actually see the rupture. The rupture is this slightly whitened line running along here. This is an immensely high-resolution satellite image. It's an amazing resource that we have it available to us for free on software like Google Earth. In the middle of the image, you have a stream. Right? So here's our stream, and it is flowing this way. So it's flowing to the, uh, to the west, and it comes along here and, and, and goes off this image. Right? So here's our, here's our stream, and it flows down and goes through this little gap in, in these hills. And if I just zoom in even further... Right, so I forget exactly what satellite it is that they're, u that they're using here, um, but it's, it's, uh, I think it's QuickBird, which each little pixel on this image is 60 centimetres, and they're imaging this from space. I still find this absolutely phenomenal that you can do this. Um, I, I can't kind of get over it. These things are very new. I mean, they've, they've only been around for the last decade or so, so it's really helping us. Uh, in our abilities. So, okay, so this is a little close-up of where that, 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 that fault crosses the stream bed. And here's the fault. It runs down. Do you notice the whole, you know, this is the edge of our stream, and suddenly it's there, right? And there's, there's another one here. This little island in the stream here is, 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 is displaced, right? So I'll, I'll show that to you guys here as well. So, so here's the edge of our stream. Here's our fault, and that's moved by about three metres. And here again, the edge of this thing here and this little shadow here. All of these things displaced by about three minutes. It's amazing that we can map this from space. And the important point here is that that earthquake has produced a noticeable, noticeable effect on the landscape, right? 
these things are there, they've displaced the edges of that stream, it's recorded in some way. Now, if we fast forward maybe 10,000 years, maybe rather than 3 metres, we'll see repeated earthquakes. So we might see displacements of, of, uh, of 10 or even several tens of, 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 of metres. And I'm going to show you that, yes, you can, right? I'm going to go to this place, right? This is right in the middle. You see that little white spot there in the middle? There's a little white spot there in the middle. And this is a more, more detailed satellite image. This is an old lake bed. There used to be a lake here. Right? And now there is no more. It's just left its kind of white lake sediment deposits behind. And the fault goes right through the middle of it. So the main strand of the fault runs down here and goes right through the middle of that lake bed. Right? This, this red line. So, so I'm going I'm to look in detail at where this fault goes through the lake bed. Um, and, and, and well, actually, this is just to show what it looks like. It's a dry lake bed, right? There used to be water here, there is no longer. Um, it's well, also good at showing you what eastern Iran looks like. It's a pretty hot, arid place. Um, it's also a good place for bandits. These mountains have got all sorts of people hiding in them. So we couldn't go any closer than this. Sometimes this is our biggest restriction. Uh, uh, yeah, it's like kind of drug smugglers and all sorts of things. Um, so anyway, um, nice place. And, uh, we <laughs> and uh, it, what you notice is the lake bed here, and, and there's all these little streams which have been cut down into it, right? So all the streams are in little gullies. And that's important to us, right? Here, again, this is, this is actually an aerial photograph taken over, over our dry lake bed. And you can see the fault here, right? Look, this is the fault line. You can see it's having an effect on the landscape. It just cuts through like a knife cut right through the middle there, right? Just do that again over, over here. Uh, so there's, there's our fault line. So, so, you know, I'm sure a lot of you had already spotted it. It's so obvious. It cuts right through the middle, right? Let's zoom in. We'll use some of our high-resolution satellite imagery again. You know, there's amazing things that we, we have now and have only had for a very short period of time. Lake beds, streams, right? And look at this. This is our fault. And every time you go across the fault, our stream bed is just moved, right? It's, it's kinked. It's got a 90-degree bend in it, right? So right here, here's our, here's our fault. And every time a stream goes across the fault, it, it, it just has this big, this big kink. Look at the scale bar in the top, uh, top right there. That's about 30 metres. And we can actually, well, we could do this. We can take a piece of paper or a virtual piece of paper and a virtual pair of scissors, and we can cut that through the middle, and we can restore it. And we can say, OK, there's been about 30 metres of motion there. That's more than one earthquake, right? This is three metres displacement in the last earthquake. This is 30. This is 10 earthquakes if everything happens um, um, uh, the same in each, in, each, in each earthquake. So that's great. We can identify this fault. We know it's there. If there'd be no earthquakes there, we could say, well, it's very likely that there will be one in this area in future, you know? So we can identify the sources. Just to show you that, you know, that, that's the fault running through. It's another view. That's our displaced stream. It's, 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 once you've spotted it, then you need the space imagery to spot it. Otherwise, you'll just be wandering around forever and you'll never find anything. But once you've got your eye in, you know where to go. You go straight there. And it's like, yeah, OK, this is obvious. But what else we want to do here, wouldn't it be great if we knew how old that lake bed was? Right, so that would be really good. Because then we could actually say how fast this fault's moving, right? We could start to say something about whether it makes earthquakes every hundreds of years or every thousands of years or every tens of thousands of years. And that's what we did. So we went into one of our stream beds 
And, and, and we, we were very lucky here. What we did is we found lots of bits of twigs and things. So you imagine you have a lake and bits of wood float off and then drop into the middle of the lake. And wood is absolutely brilliant for dating, if we want to find out how old ancient wood is, because we can date it with radiocarbon. So, you know, when we're alive and we're taking in carbon-14 as well as carbon-13 and we're, we're putting it into our, our, our bodies, and then um, when we die, we, uh, that, that, that carbon-14 gradually decays away because it's radioactive. And depending on the levels of radiocarbon, for, uh, radiocarbon you, can, you can actually say when these things uh, date from. So we're getting ages of 7.9, 7.8 thousand years. So at that time, there was a lake here. That's actually kind of interesting in all sorts of ways, because it tells us that this hot desert used to be much wetter and greener at that time. So there's all sorts of spin-off information that we can get. But for us... It tells us that there has been about 30 metres of motion in about 8,000 years. It tells us that the fault is moving on average at between 3.1-4.5 millimetres per year. So this is that gradual stretching that's happening all the time, right? And our fault's locked, and it's gradually accumulating this every year. Every so often it will snap and it will break and it will make an earthquake and release all of that stored um, uh, deformation, that stored strain. Simply saying that the earthquakes make three metres of slip, it's moving at that kind of rate, tells us that it, it will likely, on average, make those kind of earthquakes between 660, 960 years. Now, that's great. Okay, so we can make some assessment of how often you have earthquakes here. Um, we were kind of lucky there. Uh, working in Iran... Uh, you generally don't find nice bits of wood lying around. You see this. You see lifeless piles of stone, deserts. How do you actually date these things? Because sometimes we have to. How do you date a pile of stones? There are actually ways. It generally involves digging a hole. This is what we start off doing. Right? So here we've hired these guys. These are kind of professional hole diggers. I'll show you why you need professional hole diggers in Iran in a little while. Uh, but here they are doing their job. They're very fast. Um, and then you get in the hole. And, and then, and then you know, I've got the geological hammer for scale. I do have a scale on this one. And, and, and I'm going to use this to, 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 to sample from the inside of the hole. Sometimes you need to do it in the dark. And uh, it's, it's, it's not very dark where we were, so you end up, oh, it's, it's awful, it's awful. Uh, it's not, not uh, it kind of turns into some kind of steam bath or something in there, but dusty uh, as, as well. Um, anyway, I'm not even going to go into the dating methods, for you, but there are ways of dating lifeless rocks. It's absolutely amazing. And again, these are some of the modern technologies that we can use. So you can find out how old those things are. Sometimes we can be quite innovative or have to be innovative in terms of what we can find uh, that, that will give us a rate of slip on the fault. Here is an example from 1968, the Dash to earthquake up in the northeast of Iran, our red dot in the, in, in the top corner there. And we have um, the Dash to fault, a big strike slip fault running along the, the edge of this image. And this is a very destructive earthquake in, in 1968. Um, uh, here's a photo from 1968. You can see large ground deformations. Uh, you can see this, uh, this, this. Uh, uh, well, the, the, the village is destroyed. Um, so yeah, everything fell down. It, it killed, I think, about 12,000 people in a very sparsely populated area. And this is a photograph, aerial photograph taken straight after that earthquake. And you could see the ground deformations from that earthquake. Right, they run right through the middle of. The image, and there isn't really 
much in this area, right? Okay, dash de Bayaz means the light-coloured plane. It's just a plane, right? So there's, there's a very little topography. How can we find things for, for dating in order to give us slip rates? Um, well, we can actually use some things. First of all, I do have a scale on this one, right? Uh, it was three metres of displacement in the earthquake. And there's a little stream bed which is moved by about three metres, right, in, in, in the middle there. So that's, that's your scale. There is actually one rather strange... Uh, feature um, within this image. These are these things, these craters that are just like kind of littered all the way across the um, landscape here. These things are ganats, right? And this is where our professional hole diggers are explained. What is a ganat? The ganat is a, it's a, an underground canal, right? What you do is you tap a water source out here, right? And you bring water in an underground canal and you bring it out to your village, right? So, uh, away from the mountains. And these craters are, are the vertical axis tunnels. The reason why you often have elevated water tables under the mountains is that they're often there because of the faults, and the faults trapping the water. It, so so, so that you see this very kind of close relationship between water and faults. This is something we're going to explore uh, uh, to, to a certain extent in the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Notice also there's... I put this pink line over here. There are some very old ones, right? Very eroded. I think. Can you can you see those, right? And if I cross the fault, I can see them on the other side. There they are, right? Ooh. And if I try and draw a straight line between them, what happens is that I see they're displaced by more than three meters. They're actually displaced by ten meters. So that's probably several earthquakes. These things are very ancient things. They're still there, right? This is a satellite image. We went out there a few years ago. And the landscape has changed considerably. Again, I'm using Google Earth. Um, but some of those, those, those craters are still there. And we, we've actually made a, a digital topographic map. So you can see uh, some of those old um, uh, Kanat mounds. And we, we, we actually dug into one of them. So we, we, we dug a little trench. And, and you can see all of, the, all of the spoil that was made when this thing was being made. And, and th these things, these very ancient things, are, could be up to 4,000 years old. This is a very, well, it's, very, it's an amazing technology, and it's also a very ancient technology. So we can actually, from that, get, a, get an idea of how fast that fault is moving. But turning that into an average recurrence on, uh, in terms of earthquakes, is, it, it takes a little bit more. I've been saying, yeah, okay, on average, you'll get one every such and such. Um, but that might not be the case. Maybe you'll have one metre slip. Uh, and then another one metre slip, and then a five metre slip, and they have different uh, uh, intervals between them. So, so one thing that's done a lot, this is actually an example from Japan, from the, the earthquake rupture of the, of the 1995 Kobe earthquake, so they built a museum over this, is to actually dig a trench, look at the fault in cross-section, and almost like an archaeological excavation, to build up a record of each of the past earthquakes, and do very precise dating looking each time for the, uh, for the, for the land uh, horizon immediately prior to the earthquake, then immediately following. And you can build up very precise chronologies of exactly what happened in each of the earthquakes using that. Okay, so that's kind of a survey of some of the techniques that we've used. Not only have we got a lot of new techniques to study earthquakes, we're also getting a lot better at recognising active structures. I should mention right now prediction, all these things I've been doing are just saying, you know, on average we can do this, all this all kind of stuff. And obviously prediction is kind of a, a hot topic and, and it's a question that, that I'm often asked. And, and basically no. I don't know if anyone watched the Newsnight article um, or, or yesterday. Did, did anyone watch Newsnight? 
There was, it's on iPlayer right now, and, and, and basically this, uh, there's, there's this kind of problem in Italy right now where a bunch of earthquake scientists are actually on trial uh, for, for failing to predict an earthquake, an earthquake that happened in Italy a few years ago. And, and that's actually a very good article. It, it, runs, it runs through uh, some of the... Uh, well, it, it's, it's actually a very... I, I do recommend you, you watch it. But basically, no, we can't predict earthquakes. We don't know what to look for, right? So there's no, 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 no way of doing it. But I'm also going to tell you that, 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 in a way, you can solve, to a certain extent, the, these, these problems, the societal problems of earthquakes. Um, here's a significant earthquakes for the last two years. We've got the name of the earthquake, we've got when it happened, its magnitude, the uh, population exposed to, that's modified mechanical intensity, so that's the amount of shaking uh, of a certain level of quite strong shaking, and then also the casualties and and, and the ratio of the casualties over the the amount of people that were exposed to that shaking. There's a couple of things here, right? Tibet. April 2010, didn't really make the news, oh, it did make the news, but it wasn't highly reported. Only 12,000 people were actually exposed to strong shaking in that earthquake, but of that, about 22.5% were killed, right? So it's not such a big earthquake, 6.9, right? In the Japanese earthquake that's just gone, over 6 million people were exposed to a lot, lot, well, it was a huge earthquake, over 6 million people were exposed to strong shaking, and, and, and actually, about 0.4%. So it's still a huge disaster. I mean, this is the thing. Many people were killed. But, but in a way, because J- Japan does have a long record of being prepared, then in so, uh, 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 you know, so, so in a way, uh, although there's been a very big earthquake, a lot of the photographs we saw and the footage we saw of the tsunami coming in were from people standing in high buildings that have just withstood an immensely strong building, and they can still stay in those buildings. So, so there's a very high level of preparedness there. Notice also Christchurch in New Zealand. So, yeah, it was a very destructive earthquake. It had a, a large loss of life, 181 people, out of an exposed population of 320,000. So, so if you actually look at it in terms of ratios, it's like a very small fraction of a percentage. So, again, rigorous building, uh, rigorous training in terms of, of, of people's readiness for these things can have an effect. And we actually see this, you can draw a chart, you know, cost of earthquakes in, in terms of economic loss uh, versus deaths, and, and, and you can put a line down the middle. And you see that on this side you have things like Northridge, this is California, so places like California, Japan, uh, our Italian earthquake in 2009, and, and Greece here. Uh, 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 again in Japan. And down here we've got all sorts of different places. We've got China, uh, Haiti, Pakistan, uh, Iran, Tabas, 1978. So, so you end up with the situation where in some countries you cost an earthquake in terms of economic loss, in others you, you, you do it by how many people are killed. Right? And that's for all sorts of different magnitudes that we've, we've, we've you know, colour-coded it. So why do you get so much destruction in places like Iran, right? It, it, this photo's got all the elements of it, really. It's, uh, it's got mountains, mountains there because of faults. It's got trees. Uh, people are living in that one place. Everything else is desert, right? So there's, there's some reason why those trees are there. Um, you've got the construction, heavy adobe construction, which falls down when there's an earthquake. It's very weak, um, but it's all that is available in these desert regions. 
Here's an example from Tabas. This was one of the most costly ones in terms of, of, of deaths on that chart. And here we have, well, Tabas is this little green spot. It's a little oasis in the desert. And in fact, there's a line of little green spots along that, uh, along, uh, be, running between this desert out here in the west and these mountains out here in the east. So here's the, the, the desert Here's the mountains, and here's our little string of oases. It's a very pleasant place. Here's my colleague, Dr. Khatib. Um, and, you know, trees, nice buildings, all very modern, all lovely. Lots of water. There's even some pelicans, um, which um, they're, they're kind of very proud of these pelicans. They came by accident, I think, uh, uh, decades ago and decided it was such a nice place they didn't want to leave. In 1978, 16th of September, it had a magnitude 7.4 earthquake, which killed 20,000 people, uh, which you know, some of these earthquakes we're looking at kill a lot more than that. But this is 85% of the population. Right? Everything fell down along this entire zone. Right? And, and in fact, it's, 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 uh, well, let's, let's actually look at this. Why, why are these people living in these little oases? Let's look at the landscape just next door to where people are living, and you see some little clues as to what might be happening. There's some little hills, right? Not much, but you can see them in the satellite imagery. If you go to Google Earth, you can spot those things. They don't look like much. But if we go and look at them in, in detail, first of all, looking at a, at a Google Earth image, a, a, a kind of 3D look, here's Tabas, and here are little low hills, right? We can see them. There's mountains well in the distance. There's all these little low hills. What on earth are those things doing? We can go to the field. We can look at them. They're not very impressive. They're those things in the foreground. They're a few tens of metres high, right? Hardly anything. But let's actually go into one of the river cuttings and look at the sediments in there. What we see is that all of those river sediments have been tilted. They're, 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 they're bent. They're tilted. And, and older ones, the ones that are further down here, have been tilted more, and younger ones have been, been tilted less. What's actually happening here? They're... Oh, what, 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 what you've got is a big fault at depth. This is something called a blind fault, a blind thrust fault. And it doesn't reach the Earth's surface, and instead what it does is it causes folding. And this folding in these soft sediments doesn't produce much topography. It produces these very low hills, but we can see the folding in the tilting of all these young sediments. And... It's a hidden hazard. These are things that we're getting much better at identifying, but these are, well, I mean, they, they are immensely hazards. They're blind. You, there's no whacking great fault at the Earth's surface that you can look at. And if you go to Tabas, all of the towns are built along the lines of this um, because there is water. They can make date palms and all the rest of it. So, so this is what Tabas used to look like, adobe construction. A lot of that, well, essentially all, all fell down. The only buildings that stayed upright... Um, were, were the water systems, which are built in dome shape. Domes are stronger. And so the only things that were still standing were actually the few buildings that people didn't live in. So why live there? It's because these are the only places you can live, and these are the only places you can live there because there was a water supply. The water supply is coming up along the faults, right? There's this immensely close linkage between the active faults which allow people to live in these regions, but also every thousand years or so, they'll slip and they will destroy a large proportion of the population. If there are no faults, this is what it tends to look like otherwise, right? Now, 
that's all well and good. Lots of little towns, small populations. You have an earthquake, you rebuild, right? Because there's nowhere else to go. So you rebuild your houses in the same place because you've got a, an oasis, you've got a water supply. You've got places like Tehran. Um, um, also, mountains in the background. But here, we don't see any desert. We just see a big concrete jungle. This is an image, uh, like a 3D perspective view of Tehran. The, the whole area is, you can see the street plan. I mean, it's a massive area. It's got a population of 12 million. Apparently, it goes up to about 15 million during the daytime. And look what we see, right? Within metropolitan Tehran, you've got these little hills, right? Little low hills. Not much. A few tens of metres, topography. And you see all of these little rivers and canyons. It looks very close to our, uh, like our, like our Tabas example. In fact, these things are faults. You've got a big fault along the north side there. You have these, these little blind faults, which are still destructive. I mean, we've seen what these things can do when we were looking at Tabas. Now, Tehran has been destroyed several times. It was destroyed in 855 AD, 958, 1177, and 1830 AD. But just, I just went online, I just found an old map of Tehran dating from 1947. Tehran was that big in 1947. It was a town like Tabas, right? Or maybe a little bit bigger. But it, it, it's grown hugely in the last 50 years. And this is not a problem confined to Iran. It's a global issue. We're seeing more and more people, and we're seeing more and more people going into major cities. Here's Delhi, for instance, and Islamabad. This is a record of historical earthquakes along the front of the Himalayas in northern India. 2005 Musafarabad earthquake with, uh, with, with, with some of the results of that there. There have been some huge earthquakes along this front here, and they've been immensely devastating even in those times. But now the population that is exposed to shaking from those earthquakes is many times greater. And you can kind of see that here. I've shown you lots of bar charts and things. This is a map of the world. Size of a circle is how many people the earthquakes have killed. And the, uh, the, this colour scale is, is magnitude, with red being the largest one. So we can see our Sumatran earthquake down here. We can see our Japanese earthquake as another red dot up there. But what you see is some huge, um, big circles, and in fact, many intermediate-sized um, circles, which are all kind of having a big cumulative effect, all the way across this, this kind of alpine Himalayan zone. Lots of the kind of arid countries where you're having rapid urbanisation and large population growth. And, and really, that's, that's basically it. So I'm, I'm kind of leaving it there. This, if we're talking about challenges that are facing us in the 21st century... Then, then, well, this is it, really. This is, this is the challenge. But also there were ways of getting around this. You could see that in California, which has similar levels of hazard, that the earthquakes are mainly um, economic, right, in terms of their effects. They, and also in places like Japan and New Zealand, that, that with rigorous um, training and, and enforcement and various things of this, you, you can actually start to um, bring these, um, the, these, these um, problems under control. Thank you very much for your attention.